And so love us well today, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, as you turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, we pick up where we left off last week in verse 8. It was reported this past week for the first time in, in the 50-year study known as the General Social Survey, GSS. For the first time in their 50-year study, more Americans never attend church than regularly attend or sporadically attend. Uh, just in understanding their definition, they're talking about people showing up in a place like this on a Sunday morning. So they're not some big theological definition of what it means to be part of a church. Just do you show up in a place like this? For the first time in 50 years, there's more people who don't. Now, honestly, if you take all three groups, those who never attend, those who regularly attend, those who sporadically attend, it's really like thirds. It's like 34, 33, and 32%. So the, the nation's really just divided along those three lines. And it could be certainly a sign of spiritual decay as a nation, but it can also be a sign of the continued slow death of cultural Christianity, which is a good thing. People claiming to be Christians simply because it's been such a big part of our culture as a nation. There's been no true conviction of belief. And so people are done with pretending they're just out. There's also a four-part series that the New York Times has done about the continued decline of the American church that talks about six to 10,000 churches shutting their door every year. I don't know if they go into the churches that are also planted, but some of that isn't necessarily bad. Some churches are are dying or dead and need to close their doors. Some churches are not proclaiming the gospel and they need to close their doors. But we have all of these conversations about how healthy is the American church and, and these are just basing it simply on who shows up in a building on a certain day of the week. What I wish could be studied isn't just who shows up in a place like this. And this is important, right? We don't want to ever dismiss what we do on Sundays and the Lord's Day when we gather as one body. And uh, Joseph, in fact, is working on something uh, to, to get more people helping in all the various ways that we need help to, to make this effective. And he'll be communicating that with you guys uh, this week, the workplace. So this is important, but we also know that that's not all there is to being a church. If we could study about the, how, how, how much are the unique qualities that we see in the New Testament that describe who we are, how much is that showing up in healthy ways? Being physically present is important, but it's really like the lowest bar, just showing up. How much more the qualities of who we are as God's people, how he's created us, how he's called us, how much of those things showing up? We've seen a ton of examples so far in 1 Peter, and we see more today in verse 8 of chapter 3. Finally, all of you be like-minded and sympathetic, love one another, and be compassionate and humble, not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, giving a blessing, since you are called for this, so that you may inherit a blessing. For the one who wants to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit, and let him turn away from evil and do what is good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do what is evil. Peter says, finally, not because he's about to wrap up the letter. We're still got another chapter, two and a half chapters to go. But because we're wrapping up this section and then he addresses all of you. He's been talking as you go back over the last several weeks to uh, specific groups within the church. That's 
talk to the citizens of the nation of Rome and their relationship with human authorities and governmental authorities. Let's talk to slaves and our servants and their relationship to masters. Let's talk to husbands and wives and their relationship to each other. And now he says, all of you live a certain way. And in these verses, we see an extensive list of descriptors that describe who we are and how we relate to one another that flow from our new identity in Christ and our new calling because of Christ. And I've, I've kind of arranged them into these five qualities. So number one, we see how we think. How we think harmoniously and humbly. We see this in verse eight. He says we are to be like-minded and humble. Like-minded, not uniformity where we all think exactly the same thing, but it's unity with diversity. In other words, harmony. We're all on the same page in terms of the mission, even though there's various shades to how we believe or think about certain things. Now, there's certainly core beliefs. We have to be on the same page. These essentials to our faith, the character nature of God, the character nature of Jesus, the sufficiency of his salvation through grace, by grace through faith alone, the glory of God. There's, there's certain aspects we have to agree on. Like, it's what makes us all part of the same church. There has to be unity on those things and even uniformity. But, but besides that, there's lots of shades of different uh, perspectives that we can have on a lot of things in life. And, and not just the things that relate to our faith, but how we view life, how we parent our kids, the jobs that we work, how we live, where we live. But it, we're, we're taking all of those things and we're, we're using them for the same mission, for the same purpose, with all of our various personalities and Enneagram numbers and giftings like we love great sports teams I could mention a couple of recent national champions I won't so I don't drive y'all nuts but usually the championship teams have a diverse cast of characters the crazy guy the quiet guy the star of the team the 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 old guy who's just contributing what he can and we love that we love how uh, those teams win championships or get trophies and all these players contribute in their own unique way there's a harmony to them a unity. The church is comprised of many members, as we see in places like 1 Corinthians 12, but one body, one mission, one purpose. It's the term harmony. It's like a band or a symphony, various instruments and voices working together to make a beautiful song or arrangement. So we are the same as the church. Jesus prayed for this on the night of his arrest in John 17. I prayed not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. And in Jesus, we experience and enjoy that kind of harmony and we declare to the world our uniqueness. We are one in Christ. There's no other entity in the world like the church. This kind of harmony and unity is so important, Paul would say it's worth fighting for in Ephesians 4.3, making every effort, making every effort, there's no effort that we should lack in making something happen. What? To keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. The unity of the Spirit of the bond of peace isn't present. We need to make every effort to make sure it's present. Like a good theater production where every member of the team from the lead roles to supporting roles, lights, backstage, music, the box office, everyone working together within their roles for the declaration of this peace to the world to give great joy to all who will come and see. Lack of harmony would be Michael Scott in his improv class. 
where Michael Scott just wants to make it about him and how he views his role and how he wants things to go down. We know this and we see it when it's present and we know when it's not present. And I'm incredibly grateful for the the harmony and the unity that we're experiencing and enjoying right now as a church. God has been very kind and very gracious to bring us to this place where there's this genuineness, oneness that we're enjoying and experiencing. And we want to enjoy it, yes, but we want to fight to keep it, making every effort to keep it. And we want to maximize it for the glory of Christ as we spread his name and fame throughout this region and to the ends of the earth. And we also need humility, not just harmony, but the right understanding of the greatness of God and our limitations as humans. Humility is a life of dependence on God or need of each other. We see it in a place like Philippians 2. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation of love, any fellowship with the Spirit, if there's any affection and mercy, Paul says, to make my joy complete by thinking the same thing. So unity again, unity of mind. Having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing, verse 3, out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. And verse 4 is really important. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. Yes, we have things that we have to take care of for ourselves, but in humility we never stop there we always move beyond ourselves to the interests of others if your entire life is wrapped up in just caring for you that's actually pride that's not humility if you keep reading that passage of philippians 2 the example we have is christ who in humility left heaven laid aside his divine rights as the son of god wrapped his glory in human flesh took the form of a servant so that he could be obedient to death death on the cross If Jesus appeared during his first coming, like he will appear at his second coming, they would not have killed him, they would have worshipped him. But then he would not have accomplished what he was sent to accomplish, redemption. The spotless, sinless one dying in the place of sinful humanity. So he had to hide, wrap that divine nature in human flesh, taking the form of a servant. So that he could give his life to serve as a ransom for many, as Mark 10, 45 tells us. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. It's not being a doormat, but it's choosing to lay down your rights for the good of others. It's making that choice. It's making the needs of others as important and even more important than your own. Again, this can be taken to the extreme. We don't want to do that. Two people competing for how humble they are. They can't even walk through a door. You go, no, you go, no, you go, no, you go. They never make a decision, get anything done because they're constantly deferring. So we, we function with a sense of confidence and calling, but it's, it's not rooted in how much we make of ourselves. It's rooted in how much God has created and called us, who God has made us to be. He is the source. We are the simple vessel And we never use God's gifting or calling to manipulate others, but we use it to serve others and benefit others. Like just imagine a community of people just defined by these two qualities, harmony and humility. But it gets better. Number two, how we feel. How we feel, not just how we think, but how we feel. We see this in the words sympathetic and compassionate in verse eight. Sympathy, we feel with others. 
We rejoice with those who rejoice. We weep with those who weep. We enter their sufferings or we enter their joys and we get so close that we feel what they feel. Never fully feeling. We can't literally be in someone's shoes, but we're, we're close enough to, to truly feel what they feel. And then compassion, we feel for one another. Sympathy, we feel with one another. Compassion, we feel for one another. Tenderhearted is another translation. We are moved to feel and love and care for those who are hurting. And Jesus, of course, is the perfect picture of this. The great sympathizing high priest. He resisted every temptation to sin. He's walked in our shoes. He knows everything we felt or experienced. You can always run to Jesus. He knows. He knows. He knows what you feel. And he was the most compassionate one, most willing to help those who are suffering and hurting, showing more compassion to the hurting, the sick, those who admitted they had a need, and then those who would not admit they had a need, the proud, the arrogant, the righteous, less compassion because they were hard-hearted. Again, there are healthy limits to this. We're not talking about codependency. We're not talking about living a life obsessed over knowing every single detail and decision of the lives of others. We're not talking about, you know, latching ourselves to others and when they're high, we're high. When they're low, we're low. It's not someone overwhelmed by, by their feelings so their feelings become what ultimately determines everything they do. But in a healthy way, we're emotionally engaged with one another. We genuinely care and feel together. And we're allowing our emotions to flow genuinely to one another. Like the opposite of this would be living a, a life so independent and cut off from each other that we don't even know the good that you're experiencing. We don't even know the hard that you're walking through. We don't even know the ways in which you're suffering. Because we're not really present in each other's lives. So yes, we have to be physically present in each other's lives. And when not physically present, we have to be mindful of each other. Like the Lord brings you to mind. And we have technology to help like never before. If we can take our phones out to play a game or watch a show or, or scroll through Facebook or whatever, then we can take our phones out to text somebody or to respond to a text or to call somebody. But we also have to be emotionally engaged. So it's not just I know what you're going through but I'm emotionally present with you in it. I care. I genuinely care. To not be detached or uncaring or robotic or unmoved or hard-hearted or lacking compassion. Like we are less than human if our emotions can't be moved in response to the joys and sorrows of others. It's less than human. If you find yourself in that place of struggling to engage emotionally with one another, then ask for help to dig into the wounds and the walls that you've built to protect yourself. Which is understandable. If you've been hurt, you're going to build walls because you have wounds. You're going to keep people at bay, right? Hurt people hurt people. We know that. But some of us struggle because we've never been shown or we've never experienced this kind of compassion and sympathy from others and so we're protecting ourselves. And the church can be this place that that we can let down those walls and we can begin to learn. We can learn to be loved. It's usually where it starts. Allow yourself to be loved by the body of Christ, by Jesus, by the, your Father who created you. And then in turn, you can 
let him use you to love others. But it starts with you being loved by him. Worthy of his love. He sent his son to die for you. You're worthy of the love of your father in heaven, the God who created you. And we can be this, this place where we're voicing that to one another constantly. We're demonstrating, it, we're demonstrating that to one another. It's just, just inevitable this thing's going to die. Do I need to go ahead and switch? We're demonstrating this to one another. Thirdly, how we love. How we love as a family. Verse 8 has these five adjectives and they form this kind of pattern. So the first and last speak of, speak of how this, we have this right perspective in our minds how we're like-minded and humble. The second and fourth adjectives have more to do with how we feel. We're sympathetic, compassionate, and they're held together by this central adjective to love one another. I have brotherly affection. Like if you've grown up in the church, you've probably heard about the various words in the Greek language translated into love. So you have agape love, the love of choice, love of volition, the love of God. It's a love we have for our enemies. It's the love of unwavering commitment. That's not the word for love here. It's, this is phileo, brotherly love, Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. And one of the mistakes I think we've made in the church is we hold up agape as, as the ideal. We almost ignore the other kinds of love that we're supposed to have. Agape is amazing. I mean, basically, uh, Christianity, the gospel, Jesus created this word agape that didn't really uh, exist with its meaning that we gave it in the Greco-Roman world, in the Greek language. Like, Jesus gave this word its meaning. And the church has carried it on for several thousand years. But phileo is also a significant kind of love that we should feel for each other. This affectionate love, the love shared by a family. Like Jesus told the disciples after washing their feet, I give you a new command, love one another. Just as I've loved you, love one another. And everyone will know you're my disciples if you love one another. We can be known by our love just for each other. And so how well do we experience and enjoy and display that kind of love for one another? So if we just took these, verse 8, these five adjectives, and we just committed to ask Jesus to help us with these five, like if our DNA groups met and discussed and helped each other be accountable for these five things, harmony, humility, sympathy, compassion, affectionate love, that would be the rest of our lives, just to do these five things. Don't take any other verse in the Bible. We didn't have to study any other books or have another Bible reading plan. Just, just try to live out these five things in our homes as husbands, wives, moms, dads, kids, students, with our, with, with our friends, with our fellow church members, with our neighbors at work. Like Bible knowing isn't the struggle for us as much as Bible doing. Do we wrestle and fight to grasp and obey the simple, clear things of the Bible? That we know. Are we always just wanting to run to the new, the interesting, the curious? Like we want to be a church known more for Bible doing than Bible knowing. Because we're obeying the commands of Scripture. And we could just take one verse and it could fill our lives for the next year. How are we doing living this out? Hold me accountable, brother, to, to demonstrating this in my life. Hold me accountable, sister, to demonstrating this in my life. Our culture is starving for that kind of community that would live out this in genuine, transforming ways. But it gets better and also harder. So fourthly, how we treat our enemies. How we treat our enemies. We see this in verse 9. Not paying back evil for evil 
are insult for insult, but on the contrary, we give a blessing since you were called for this. This idea of how we treat those who insult us or accuse us or hurt us or commit evil acts against us, our enemies, has a long history in the life of God's people. Leviticus 19.18, don't take revenge or bear grudge against members of your community, but love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord. Proverbs 20.22, don't say, I will avenge this evil, wait on the Lord, and he will rescue you. Of course, we know this is a key part of the teachings of Jesus. Matthew 5, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers and sisters... What are you doing out of the ordinary? Like everybody does that. Uh, Later in Luke 6, But I say to you who listen, love your enemies, do what is good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If anyone hits you on the cheek, offer the other cheek also. If anyone takes away your coat, don't hold back your shirt either. Give to everyone who asks you, and from someone who takes your things, don't ask for them back. A few verses later, but love your enemies, Jesus says, do what is good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the most high for he is gracious to the ungrateful and evil. Be merciful just as your father also is merciful. And of course, this idea is picked up in by other writers of the New Testament letters in Paul and Romans 12, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. A few verses later, verse 17, do not repay evil for evil. Give careful thought to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, as far as it depends on you, it's not always possible, but as far as you can control it, live at peace with everyone. Friends, don't avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath because it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in doing so, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. Don't conquer by evil, but conquer evil with good. And then lastly, in 1 Thessalonians 5, see to it that no one repays evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good for one another and for all. Like the consistent message of the Bible toward those who would persecute us or be our enemies isn't to curse, isn't to retaliate or take revenge, but to always bless, to show grace, to show mercy. This, is, of course, is along the lines of personal relationships. So we're not talking about um, governments. Governments have been given this unique task to punish evildoers, to reward those who do good. So if you're an agent of a government entity and that's your job, then you, you have to do that. But we're talking about personally and people, how people treat us on a personal level. When we suffer or experience the hatred of enemies or those who hate Christianity, we don't fight back With the same weapons of evil, we bless, we pray, we endure, we show mercy and grace. This is just crazy talk. Like just reading through those passages, I'm like, really? We're really supposed to live like this? Like this isn't just something that applied 2,000 years ago, has no bearing on today? Like who does this? And the answer is 
we do. In fact, if you remember back just a few verses in chapter 2, we see the same exact thing. 1 Peter 2, 21 through 23. For you were called to this, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Now talk about a way of life that demands a gospel explanation to live this out. Like our culture and even the church culture has become very skilled at creating enemies and then scheming to attack those enemies. Some in the name of politicians or movements like Christian nationalism literally would, literally would take up arms to advance what they perceive as the cause of Christ. Like it feels like there are some groups that would love to recreate the Crusades and march on Washington or whatever they, they want to march on. California, let's take it out. It's easy for us sitting here at the, as a crossing to look down on those kinds of Christians, but, but what about us? When we're falsely accused, when we're getting slighted or hurt by someone, maybe it's, it is the wounds of a friend who's trying to help us see blind spots, or maybe it's the wounds of a friend who's wounded themselves. Whatever the case and whoever it comes from, when we receive it, the most Jesus-like response isn't to take revenge, retaliate, insult, or hurt, but it's to bless, to speak well, to lift up. How is that possible? If you go back to the end of 1 Peter 2, verse 23, Jesus, when he suffered, did not threaten, but he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Just like Romans 12, we don't take vengeance because vengeance belongs to the Lord. In the end, we live with this perspective about life that right here, right now, isn't as important as the, the ultimate settling of all things. In the end, the Lord will even the scales. It's not up to us. We show mercy and grace and bless because ultimately what we want for our enemies is not for them to suffer, but for them to be saved. For them to experience the same love, grace, and mercy that we've experienced. Because we see them as God sees them. To themselves experience and enjoy God's mercy and grace. Now maybe that means one day they come back and say, hey, I'm sorry for the way I treated you. Will you forgive me? Or maybe that never happens. Maybe they only come to repentance at the very end of life and you don't have that opportunity for reconciliation. But we leave all of that in the hands of the Lord and we entrust Him with their soul and their future. And our calling is to live like Jesus lived, who suffered unjustly and never retaliated. Not because he couldn't, but in humility, he laid aside his right to retaliate, trusting God to accomplish purposes greater than revenge and retaliation. Does that mean we never seek justice, like personally or corporately? There are times that we can and should seek justice for, for right things to happen. But it's never in the spirit of retaliation or revenge. It's never to injure or insult. But it's for good to be done for the benefit of others. And it's done with a spirit of grace and mercy, never out of bitterness or hurt or desire to make others suffer 
or for you to win, for them to lose. We had a recent experience at a service department of a local dealership that was just gross incompetence and, and dishonesty and just, they didn't care. It's a big dealership. They don't care about customers, right? And we took every avenue we could to make others in their dealership aware of the problems. I was a little snippy in one email, so I was not perfect. Just couldn't help it. But I was able to have several conversations with people who did work there about, like, guys, nobody likes customer service like this. Nobody likes being treated like this. That's what we all hate when we're the little person and the big corporation just gets their way and we have no recourse. And maybe it'll help. I don't know. Maybe it'll make things better up there. Who knows? Now, I could go on social media every day and flame them. That'd feel great in this really sinful part of me. But then it becomes more about me trying to win and save face and stick it to them than about truly seeing justice happen. Again, it's very hard to walk through these issues. Like, there's all kinds of scenarios probably just in this room. Well, what do you do about this and what do you do about that? Which is why... God has given us each other. We need each other to figure out how to walk through these kinds of wounds and these kinds of insults and injuries that we receive from other people. When you're hurt, it's really hard to have the right perspective on how to respond. So we run to our brothers and we run to our sisters and say, hey, I'm experiencing this. Can you guys help me know the wise and good and Jesus way to respond to this? And then as the body of Christ with the word of God to help us, the spirit inside of us, we can come to right, wise, good, Jesus ways to respond. And it also helps you because you don't have to suffer alone or carry the load alone. But you can receive sympathy and compassion and love from your brothers and sisters. And then lastly, that's how we respond to our enemies. Lastly, how we enjoy the good days. We are a people blessed by God. We see this at the very end of verse 9. Since you were called for this, so that you may inherit a blessing. And then continuing, quoting Psalm 34. For the one who wants to love life and see good days. What does he do? Keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do what is good. And let him seek peace and pursue it. Because, verse 12, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who would do what is evil. If we're not careful, we might read some kind of work salvation into this. I, I do these things to get these things. But Peter's already been very clear in this, in this book with a passage like First Peter 1, 3 through 5, where he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because of his great mercy... He has given us new birth into a living hope through our good works. No, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Verse 5, you are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. There's no aspect of our salvation that we can earn or keep and that we can take credit for. It's all by His mercy through the resurrection of Jesus given us and guarded by God's power. Nothing about our salvation is accomplished or kept by our works. That's why you don't build theologies off of one verse. 
What instead you see is the result of this gracious salvation. If we are a people who have been blessed by all of this life, then we'll bless. If we are a people who have a relationship with the God who created us and our hope is in Him, then we can bless our enemies. If we are a people who receive mercy, we'll show mercy. And if we don't obey these commands in Scripture, if we don't bless, we don't show mercy, we don't forgive, then there's a problem. The problem might be we've not receiving. We've not received this new birth that God offers us through His Son, Jesus. Or we're demonstrating the works of the flesh and not the fruit of the life of the Spirit in us. And there's something is off. In other words, if we refuse to do good and desire to do evil, something is seriously wrong and heart examination needs to happen. Like if we're aware of this, like the Spirit this morning is speaking and like, man, your life is really characterized more by evil than good and bitterness and hostility than love and grace and mercy to those who've insulted you. Your response should never be, oh, well, it's okay. I'm still a Christian. Yeah, everybody's got their issues. It should never be that. God, help me. Help me to see what is off in me. What am I missing? What, is, what am I not loving? How have I been hurt? How have I not experienced your love that is, is keeping like this bottleneck on, on top of my heart and my soul? Help me to see how I need to repent and obey to, to get out of this rut that I'm in. But as we live in step with how God's created us and called us, there is blessing. We, we see, quoting Psalm 34, we even love life. Can you imagine if we were a community of people who loved life? Like there's so much sorrow and misery and suffering and struggle right now. Someone who loves life like really sticks out. And he says, well, we long for good days. We see good days. We'll know we're in the good old days while we're still in them, thankfully. Experiencing the blessings of God. Seeking and pursuing peace. Speaking truth and not lies. A liar is someone who seeks to control. Someone who speaks truth, trusts the Lord and with how people perceive them and the consequences of their actions, good and bad. He says in verse 12, the ears of the Lord will be turned toward us. His ears open to our prayers, attentive to us, eager to hear our prayers. Like one author writes, have you ever thought of prayerlessness as leaving God waiting at the place of prayer? That's how our Father is. He's like, I'm waiting. I'm waiting to hear from my children. The Greek preposition in the phrase to their prayers is instructive literally the text says that God's ears are into the prayers of the righteous it's almost as if he were bending down to hear more clearly the requests of his kids now remember as we talk about the good life and a blessed life etc this was written to believers suffering persecution for how they live life as believers with the hope they'll see the pagan culture around them trust and believe in Jesus so this is not describing a life of blessing as simply this is just peace and prosperity and easy days now. Like the good li- days in this life don't always look like an easy life or peace and happiness and everything goes your way and you're healthy and prosperous. In this life, this sin-cursed world, the blessed life is primarily life with God. It's not really tied to circumstances going your way because we have little control over that. 
The blessings of the Lord described in this passage, the Lord's eyes are on us, his ears are open to our prayers compared to the wicked whom the Lord turns away from. Like that's the ultimate realized promise that we can expect in this life. Has nothing to do with circumstances going our way. Nothing to do with accomplishments. Simply God is with us. God is for us. God is toward us. God never leaves us or forsakes us. He holds us fast. That's the greatest realization of the promises of God that we can experience in this life. Everything on top of that's lanyard. It comes and it goes. You can't control it. Like we can literally lose anyone and anything and everything in this life, but we're going to be okay because we have the Lord. He is enough for all that we need. And so don't seek utopia now. Seek Him. Seek Him. And we do that in part by doing good and not evil, by living out the adjectives of verse 8, by treating our enemies from a place of trusting the Lord with them and show mercy and bless them, not trusting our own strength to destroy them. Verse 9 says, This is the life we were called to, created for. So when we come face to face with how we failed at this, and we all have, with how we struggle to live this out, and we all do, how hard and even impossible this is, remember, it's God who called you to this. He wouldn't call his kids to do things that he doesn't also empower and make possible. He's given us a new birth. He's made us a people of his own possession. We're, we're his priests. He's chosen us. So we ask for his help to remember that. Help me to repent for where I've fallen short, where I haven't desired this, where I've been thoughtless and heartless, where I've been prideful and arrogant. Jesus, you've made me for this. So, so Jesus, help me. Help me not to live in light of the failures of my past, just bogged down with failure and shame. Help me to live with the hope of tomorrow, of today, that Jesus alive in us is here to help us. It is possible. This is a part of the reason that we, we like to share in this meal every Sunday called communion. We need to experience this shared meal. The body of Christ broken for us, the blood of Christ shed for us is what makes us family. It's his sufficient sacrifice for our sins. Yes, we are so sinful, the death of the Son of God was required to reconcile us back to God. Yes. And it was awful, and it was bloody and horrific. And that's just the physical suffering that he went through, not to mention the mental and the emotional anguish of being forsaken by his Father. And so each week as we come to this table, there is an appropriate soberness, like we're not just like, uh, you know, we all sin, shrug it off. No, we take it serious because it required the death of Jesus for every single sin that we committed. We confess and we repent, we remember. Jesus died for those sins to be forgiven, to no longer be held against us. And so we say, examine yourselves. Don't come to the table flippantly or casually. Come in a spirit of repentance that all we deserve is God's wrath. But God has made a way through his son Jesus. But his sacrifice wasn't given unwillingly, but given lovingly. So we also come with incredible joy and gratitude. 
It's just really this mixture of somberness, soberness, and incredible joy. That's the end result is joy. Jesus did make a way and loved to make a way. He loved to give his life so that we can be his. He loves us and wants us back. So it's almost as if he stands at this table, arms open wide, come to me again, and I'll renew the joy of your salvation. I'll remind you of all that I've done for you. I'll restore the hope that you have in him. While we were sinful, Christ died for us. Come and share in this sacrifice and be loved by him. Now, if you're not a believer, this meal's not for you unless right here, right now, you want to turn from your sins and trust in Jesus for salvation. Then this table's for you. It's that simple. Jesus did everything necessary. And so take a few moments to reflect and consider and ponder how the Spirit of the Lord is speaking to you. Take some time to confess and repent your sins. Take some time to remember again who you're trusting in for salvation and all that he's done to make this salvation available to you and sufficient for your sins. And when you're ready, we have uh, elements at the back, elements in the front. Come and receive. If you're a baptized, repentant believer of Jesus Christ, and if you're not a baptized, repentant believer of Jesus Christ, don't leave this room today without talking to someone, someone that you came with or someone that looks like they know what they're doing. You could almost close your eyes and point, and most of the people in this room could help you walk through what it means to be a Christian. So take some time, and then come when you're ready.